You are listening to Pili Aloha Now, Building Sustainability, The Art of Respect series with co-host Dennis Michael Broussard. This series is brought to you by NextGen Incorporated. Quality custom products for safety and the future. The Art of Respect series is a journey diving into the unique practice of respect, how it relates to the environment, culture, and society. When we practice the art of respect together, we will thrive sustainably. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of Building Sustainability, Art of Respect series. This is Pili Aloha Estal, and with me is co-host Dennis Michael Broussard. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode in the Art of Respect series. Uh, what an incredible talk we had in the last episode with uh, Laura of We See You San Diego. We learned a lot about this great project that she does not just with feeding people who are in unfortunate circumstances, but how she and the volunteers who work with her are treating people with kindness, dignity, and of course, respect. Yes, Dennis Michael, I am looking forward to volunteering and hopefully we can go next Tuesday evening and be able to experience the beauty of We See You. And I know I know for me, the statistics that she was telling us about every story, every individual that she got to know, and that was a big part of it, is that she was learning that in every single one of them had some type of post-traumatic stress or childhood adversity, every single individual. So those statistics, once you start hearing those numbers and understanding the mental health of adversity and stemming from youth and cultural adversity, which leads for me to our guest today, which I, I'm so excited about. And he was a recommendation from Dr. Professor Tilke. And we're beyond honored to welcome Professor Norm Sheehan, born in Mudgee, New South Wales, Australia. He completed a PhD in education at the School of Education at the University of Queensland in 2004, winning the NV Varghese Prize for Comparative Education. He has published two books, Stolen Generations, Education, and Respectful Design. Both these works address Indigenous knowledge, Aboriginal community cultural development, and social-emotional well-being education. His expertise is based on identifying and activating existing strengths within Indigenous communities as a basis for relevant education and development initiatives. He has also led the development of Indigenous knowledge programs at Southern Cross University. And currently, Professor Sheehan is supervising PhD research at the University of Queensland, working with elders and academics to build a new generation of activists. Welcome, Professor Sheehan. Great. Yes, thank you. I'm, I'm really pleased and honored to be here. Thank you. Yeah, welcome, Professor. We're so excited to have you and have this discussion with you. Professor Sheehan, what would be helpful for our listeners is if I, I know I gave a introduction and I'm sorry if I didn't get to pronounce your original roots correctly. If you want to pronounce it correctly for me, that would be wonderful. Um, but maybe give a little bit of details about some of your background so our listeners can learn a little bit more. Uh, yes, um, I was born in Mudgee in New South Wales, um, 68 
odd years ago, 67, 68 years ago. Um, I'm uh, Wiradjuri uh, and Irish. Um, so there's my family is um, there's Kennedys and Simpsons. So there's some uh, some strong um, Irish in there as well. But we're, we're um, uh, the Wiradjuri group is one of the largest land groups in New South Wales, um, by far the largest land um, area in the central west and west of the state, um, centred around rivers, inland rivers. So uh, freshwater people, very strong uh, connections to water, very strong connections to um, country. And the concept of country is something that um, really doesn't exist uh, in Western understanding, but um, that fresh water uh, leads to um, one of the main things that listeners can look up. It's Yindamara. Yindamara or Yindamara is um, a Wiradjuri concept of respect. And if oh, you wow. do a search, at uh, Charles Sturt University, you'll find uh, it's Y-I-N-D-Y-A-M-A-R-R-A, Yinjamara. And it's um, a very strong concept of respect. Wow. Um, that is uh, central to Wiradjuri culture. And, and what, are some, uh, what, what are some ideas behind that respect? What are some strong, what, what, are, what are the concepts that, are expressed by that idea. So respect is normally um, seen as something that you show, um, uh, and I, I guess the the thing about that sort of respect, and I, I give honour to all the Wiradjuri elders who have worked on this. When I was younger, these things were not spoken about very openly, but now they are. So um, not cutting across any. Uh, of those more knowledgeable people, but the idea of respect is um, is ontological. It's the frame for understanding existence. It's not something that you apply to things in the world. It's the frame for being in the world, living in a world worth living in, um, is respect from Wiradjuri concept is the first step in any direction. Do you think too, how you mentioned it didn't used to be talked about as much as it is now because it was almost a given? So everybody kind of lived that way? Across Australia, um, in every area, there was mission stations where Aboriginal people were um, basically imprisoned from the 1890s right through in some places to the 1960s and 70s um, and were forbidden to speak language and were not allowed to discuss concepts. So the, the silence was not uh, a, a local silence. People discussed these things okay. all the time, but they weren't publicly spoken about because um, the legacy of imprisonment and the social oh. control. 
Okay. So that social control was very intense and the populations, Aboriginal populations, were quite small. But the original concept of respect was something that was spoken within the within the community, within the language, within that group for a long time. It wasn't something that wasn't given, but over time it got suppressed. That's right. It was um, suppressed um, quite directly by different church groups and the government. And it came more for a language concept of the suppression. Uh, and, la- and the only way I can relate it to is say, I know because I've lived in areas in South Pacific, say in uh, French Polynesia, where they would get rid of the names. And I know they do that in indigenous uh groups here in the United States, the Native Americans, they get rid of the names. Is it kind of the same? It was just getting rid of that term and that word? Um, I think the, the control um, aspect of it was essentially if you wanted to survive well, if you wanted to work, um, if you wanted to look after your family well in those years, um, you know, you would have children on the mission and you would be sent away to work with no wages. So um, uh, Aboriginal people were sent to work on properties across Australia and left their children behind to be brought up by um, uh, the missionaries on the mission. So um, there was separation in families as well. So it's a long history of keeping culture close and keeping quiet about it keeping language close and keeping these things uh, hidden from view. Given what you just said here, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more. I mean, you, you just gave us some insight into respect and how that meant in the community. But uh, tell us a little bit more. Give us an overview and background of the Indigenous knowledge and Aboriginal community uh, cultural development in Australia. There's a, a huge movement here that's been uh, probably moved ahead very strongly um, in the 60s and 70s, along with other movements in other countries, um, and was, you know, back in the 1980s and 1990s, I worked for ATSIC, which is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, which was part of the government, elected members who governed Aboriginal communities. And um, during the late 90s, early 2000s, those systems of support were broken down and um, funding ceased. So there's a cycle that we've been through where um, things move ahead and we get a lot of things happening and then things are, um, from a government sense, eroded. So that sort of um, world is the world of Aboriginal struggle against uh, a fairly, um, well, we talk about disregarding and, um, and dominance as the two main themes that, that drive the general population around these things in Australia. And then there's things like the reconciliation movement that are um, sort of uh, an Aboriginal national congress that are political movements working in the opposite direction. And the reconciliation movement's very strong. It has a lot of non-Aboriginal support. It does excellent work bringing reconciliation 
on the ground to localised communities. So that reconciliation action plan that we did at, um, uh, at Southern Cross, that was driven and supported by people in the university. It had an 81% support rate in the wow. university staff. So it was very, very strong. Um, with uh, the, the community now, um, University of Queensland has got a reconciliation action plan going through at the moment. And so it's been successful and supported as well. But it's the will of the, um, the institution to back it fully and implement it and to push it, keep pushing it forward. And of course, you know, if there's financial things, <laughs> the first things that are lost if there's financial problems uh, are things like that, things that are about the rights and respect for people. So for a university in Australia, um, we actually challenged the university system quite strongly and said, we are a discipline. Indigenous knowledge is a discipline. Aboriginal understanding of the world is an area that you can learn a lot from. And we offered it to them, but they were unable to accept that. And that's, um, that's a fairly common thing because it is very difficult for people to understand um, that the moment you open your eyes in the morning, culture is telling you what the world is like. And so my area I'm working in at the moment, hopefully to benefit students and communities in the future, is the idea of... Um, ontological authority. So most scariest thing that we've had is my colleagues and I meeting with the science departments of the university. We said, um, you know, we want to um, talk about ontology. For the reconciliation, is that when you try to designate it within a community or a university is the reconciliation something that your team you yourself your team did you develop this as a as a I know reconciliation isn't new globally but did you take most of your current work within Australia and then in the aboriginal groups to develop it or is it something that you work with groups across the globe to work on ideas and concepts to bring in um, that area to become its own, uh, like you said, its own, pra uh, not practice, but its own court discourse and, and its own school within universities. Um, Reconciliation Australia is a, it's a major non-profit private organisation. Okay. That that's developed um, the main driver of that is one of my good friends and old colleague is um, Auntie Jackie Huggins. She is um, the leader of reconciliation movement in my mind. She's one of the founding people in that movement. But there's a, a huge amount of politicians and uh, philanthropists and other people who helped that be built during the 1980s and 90s. 
And so now you have a reconciliation uh, program start in a university. There's an overarching organisation called Reconciliation Australia that looks at your reconciliation plan, how you're going to reconcile the violence of the past and then approves it. And if it's approved, the institution is then required to, on an annual basis, report back to Reconciliation Australia on the gains that it's made. So it's, uh, it's actually a system approach to help transform systems into non-colonising, non-divisive, more accepting um, programs. And for the reconciliation movement in Australia, is that something that you could say in the 80s started a lot within Australia or is it something that they've seen in other um, indigenous groups and countries around the world or is it kind of now people are looking at the reconciliation in Australia as a role model and as examples? Um, I think it, it drew a lot on South Africa. It okay. drew a lot from other areas in the world, um, New Zealand and um, the, the Pacific as well. Um, the colonisation that happened in the Southern Hemisphere under English rule is very, very different from the colonisation that happened, say, in South America or other places because it's, it's Victorian. It's Queen Victoria's reign when most of the colonisation occurred here. So it's actually quite modern colonisation okay. in Australia. Um, you know, you, we meet with Native Americans and I've been there and uh, done a few, little bit of study and some incredible people, but you walk into places uh, and, you know, Pueblo in New Mexico, they've been colonised by the Spanish and, and, and the English and Americans but for many hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. In Australia, um, the missions were instituted in the 1890s. Yeah. So um, that was under policies that were called Aboriginal protection. They were brought into place because if they hadn't been brought into place, the whole population would have been wiped out. Oh, wow. Okay. So the, the, the extent of of violence and disease was so great and marginalisation was so great that, um, you know, missions were brought together with remnants of populations. And it was and rare to find a mission with more than 200 people in it. And is that because of the colonisation was a little bit later compared to some of the other regions that you could look at the reconciliation? Um, the reconciliation movement is is quite strong. Um, you know, church groups and local councils and everybody has that now. Um, and I think that's a very positive thing. It shows, it means when there's a big event, Aboriginal elders come in and do an acknowledgement of country or a welcome to country. And the Aboriginal understanding of country, the respect for country is... Um, built into the systems more. But when it comes to saying, um, you know, we have a different understanding of what the world is and that might be valuable for you at university level, 
um, that sort of nut is a very hard nut to crack um, because uh, the West is so convinced that it knows everything and, or it will know everything. Uh, and we say um, you can't assume because respect is a fundamental for us. You can't assume that you know. You can't assume what the outcomes of what you're doing are going to be. You can't say, I can do whatever I like. You can't say the world is a playground for me. I can travel anywhere and go anywhere and do anything or eat anything or treat other people or animals or the country in a way that I want to. Respect means we have to consider the world first. Yeah, those unfortunately do seem like Western values that are just thrust upon wherever they end up. Yes, um, that's that ontological, um, you know, authority. You know, talk, people who talk about human rights speak about moral authority and democracy and other things. Somebody who is truthful and is acting in the interest of people has a moral authority. Um, an ontological authority is something that's imposed by culture um, that actually denigrates other understandings of what the world is automatically by what it does. So it makes it very difficult for us to stand and say, this is our country, it means this, and we have to respect it. And then uh, <laughs> you're standing next to a mine site and um, that understanding of country is overlooked because there's a lot of value in digging up the coal. So um, the ontology is, it, I think it's the battle of these centuries we're living in, where to understand what the world is actually about um, and start acting in a way that assists the world to be what it is, is a, is a huge, uh, huge barrier because if we don't assist it to be what it is, it ceases to assist us to be what we are. And I think that this sort of um, respect is very much about learning not just to be humble and acknowledge things, but learning what Auntie Mary Graham calls creation, the relational way of behaving. How are we related to this? How it is related to us? So our scientists will tell us that the world and the whole universe is mere matter that's just a puzzle game that they can understand eventually. But I think it's much more than that. And our culture tells us that if we relate to it, well and learn the patterns of relationship then we progress that's why aboriginal people have a 70,000 year old culture because we've learnt how to intelligently relate to an intelligent world we see the world as intelligent more intelligent than us and that that can get very mystical and you can say oh you know, I'm magic and special. I can do this and I can do that and you can play magic games. 
But really, fundamentally, underneath that, there is deep streams of science that is woven into and related to the way that the world operates. And they're not even being looked at at the moment. I, I do think that there is a, a deeper level of connection that I think older cultures, especially 70,000 years, that there's a deeper understanding of this connectedness between us as human beings and the environment and the nature that we're in versus, and I, I don't mean to speak like in a denigrating way about Western culture being a product of Western culture myself, but in Western culture, we don't have that feeling of connectedness. We feel like we are above or better or that we can control things and i think that 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 sense that the indigenous or aboriginal or even old old uh, cultures and communities had a better understanding of despite all the technology that we have now um yeah i think it gets back to trauma and violence um one of the things that um you know i, I work with i'm i'm very very honoured to work with um, our young PhD students coming through and I talk about them being activists. Um, I don't know what sort of activists they're going to be, none of my business, they will be their own and I think that's the best sort of approach to it. But um, we look at, you know, my elders, people I've worked with, um, you know, Uncle Charles always spoke very deeply to me and he said, you know, um, he would tell his stories and he would say, you know, people are people and people forget that that's all they are. Um, this is where we're, this is where we, we've grown. And um, the, for me, the huge thing about it is that um, progress and flights. So this, this COVID thing is a devastating, terrible thing that has potential to kill millions of people. It's awful. What's its origin? Its origin is in wet markets where exotic animals are piled together in unclean and stressful, traumatising situations for them. And people come and buy those exotic animals for exotic foods. There's a big market in that. And taking those animals, disrespecting them, disrespecting the context, disrespecting their meaning and their knowledge results in the growth of viruses, the growth of pathogens, the growth of toxicity, both mental and physical and biological as well. So um, I see that as, you know, a big message. On the other side of it, um, I, I live here on the coast um, and on a summer's day, we would have, um, just like you would have where you are, um, you know, a couple of hundred jet airplanes go over. There hasn't, hasn't been any. I think there's two or three now a day. There hasn't been any for six months. And our climate has changed here. It's, it's become 
quieter, softer, fresher. And I think that there's a message in this slowdown. Um, and so many people want it to fire up and become what it was. I, I think it's an opportunity to slow down and respect and see the positive changes that come from the earth being respected and looked at. And we've got time to look at it. Um, and in, in the papers that I've written about respect, uh, respectful design is essentially not believing that the context that you're entering into is inert. It's alive. It has its forces. It has its um, powers that move it and make sense for it. So if you go into a community, an Aboriginal community, there is a, a definite way of doing that that is totally respectful and that is to acknowledge the powers that are there. And amongst those powers, there is also probably huge amounts of trauma everywhere because almost every Aboriginal family is totally impacted by generations of imprisonment, denial of identity, denial of culture, and also removal of children and children brought up in institutions. And so the transgenerational trauma that many of us Aboriginal people in Australia have written about is huge. The boarding school system in Canada, very mm -hmm. similar to the, to the mission system in Australia, where kids are removed. Correct, same in the Native American and the United States as well. Yes, and, and that trauma is there in our communities. But I, I examined um, a PhD thesis by um, Dr. Clinton Schultz, who's an Aboriginal psychologist. And he's taken, I've worked with um, that family for many years, and those young men, they're very, very smart young men. Um, he's come through and he's said things like, we have a culture of repair. Aboriginal people have learnt and used our cultural understandings that are based in respect to develop a culture of repair. And that culture of repair is uh, a very strong set of stories that are related to the earth, but help us relate to other things. Um, so um, we, have, we have that. And it's the cultures of repair. Um, Clinton's brother, Dr. Tristan Schultz, is working in the field of design and environments. And he's saying the same thing. We can work and develop cultures that are about not, you know, environmental movements, but cultures of repair for ourselves and our environments. Now, those opportunities, that's what I see as the activism. And that so it's ontological what is my my reason for being what is what does being mean in this place my reason for being is to make a positive contribution to this place to country and to people and um, that doesn't mean you don't have fun 
because some of the funniest things I've ever seen happen and some of the greatest times come sitting, engaging with people around caring for each other and the country we live on. Um, it's not like tourism. It's actually a very deep engagement that some people find difficult, um, but learning culturally how to repair things um, generally starts with learning to respect yourself and learning how to respect your role in the world. And our communities tend to do that. Our kids learn to respect themselves and they, if they are supported and respected by their peers, they are capable of huge things. Um, and that's all kids. As far as, um, as, as the ontology goes, the ontological authority, um, there is a, Auntie Mary Graham's just written a number of papers and I'll share them with you. I'll, um, one of them is on Aboriginal ethics, how we behave ethically. Um, Auntie Mary is at University of Queensland as well. She's one of the senior elders in this community here. Um, she's uh, a brilliant mind and working constantly to build a framework for us to put forward these ideas of repairing what, um, what society can and cannot do, repairing our concepts of ourselves. So it's very hard to do that when you've been violated. If you've been, you know, a woman who's a victim of male dominance and persecution or a, a black person who's victim of white um, dominance and persecution, there's all these crimes in the past that have to be looked at. And those crimes it now extend to crimes that are about causing biological damage and I would say that the um, the pandemics are caused by human action and the responses to pandemics that ignore human suffering um, I, I'm amazed that people um, can conceive that it's not right to care for people who are becoming ill and to see it as um, a political gain. I'm amazed at that, that that is possible um, because uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit different from that and my community is very different from that. We look at it and we say, well, we know if we were in a camp in traditional times and people came from somewhere else, they wouldn't just come. We would see their, their smoke. They would like to smoke when they're a long way off. And that smoke would tell us who they were because it would show the direction they're coming from. And as they came closer, they would like different smoke and that would show us um, not only where they're coming from, but who they are. And then when they got to us, they would sit there and wait until we approached them. And so the idea of um, movement, uh, I have another brilliant student uh, who said that doing things explains everything. 
what you do explains everything you are. And you don't have to write big things about it if you do it well. It just explains. And use the example of a dance. You know, we traditional dances and the little kid will get up there and learn and everybody will laugh and be happy that he's doing it. But at two or three years old, learning those steps is doing the culture. It's not some remote explanation of what it is. The doing it explains it. So um, what's been done to the world in the last eight months or so um, for most of us is a reminder that we have to respect the world. You know, I, my family, so I, I know um, back in the 1920s, um, a lot of families in region where I came from were wiped out by the Spanish flu. Yes. And that was a four-year pandemic. That was the so, largest pandemic, correct. Yeah. And, and it came from essentially doing a little bit of research, but not having a huge knowledge of it, the conditions within the trenches during the First World War. Okay. And so you have people forcing each other into conditions that generate pathogens for us all. And, you know, it's not just peace and stopping violence. There's a, a step beyond that, which is making the place we live in toxic. And if, with all respect, I cannot conceive of anything stupider than that. And you brought up a couple just concepts for me that, I mean, obviously, Dennis Michael and I did some research about different aspects of your work and Indigenous and Aboriginal works and obviously reconciliation. So a question for you, because I always think of my listeners and and I come from an education background as well. I'm working on my doctorate and I've heard of reconciliation, but maybe this is kind of a concept I want to ask you. And what I always think of is like you is repair and, and the concept of respect. I had no idea. I mean, I've had goosebumps for the last 10 minutes as you're talking about respect because I didn't know how deeply respect was built into your culture. I know it's a concept built into a lot of cultures over time and history, but I didn't realize how deeply it was worked into your culture and the work that you do, and especially in the reconciliation. So my question for you, and, and this is maybe a little bit far-reaching, and being in education, but also being at the spot where, you know, I'm kind of constantly in and out of groups, talking to different people within different, now with the podcast in different countries, and really talking about the workings of, of respect and repair, um, coming from intergenerational healing, is what what could that look like as a and I think I asked you this before before we started recording what could it look like as far as a reconciliation um, to be able to look at that concept of respect and reconciliation for for communities across the board so even obviously in the United States we have a lot of different communities here obviously um, and a lot of different cultures 
but there's so much healing that still needs to be done. And then when you look within areas that might have two or three uh, different cultures, and I'll give an example. I, I went to Tahiti for the first time. I, I, and I never traveled when I went to England for the first time. I went to Tahiti. I always went to stay with families. I've never traveled to another country without staying with a family. I've just always felt really strongly about that. I didn't want to just go as a tourist. I, I just still haven't done it. I always go as a person to go stay with the family. I, I stick by that. The only time I go travel in a hotel is in my own town or my own community. I do what I call a staycation. But I've always really stuck by that since I don't know what instilled that in me. But that part of respect and learning cultures, even within a community um, that might have multiple cultures, what what could a reconciliation look like for universities? Because again, I've only heard of it a few times, but because of having you on this episode and learning more about the reconciliation of the Aboriginal Indigenous uh, workings and, and, and your work, what could that look like for groups across the board and, and during, especially during a pandemic, what could that look like? What, where, and, and Dennis Michael ask you this a little bit later and myself, where we could find more information and you've given us a lot of great references. So we'll definitely be able to lay that out in a, a blog so people can find those, those references that you talked about. But what, do you have any thoughts in your mind of what could some type of reconciliation uh, plan or work look like for communities globally? Is there something that you've thought of that could, and I know this is a hard question in this, you probably have thought about it, but I don't want to put you on the spot, but what could that look like as a practice within different levels of, of community, not just a university it, it, and it could stem down to a community-based type of group because you've worked a lot of grassroots as well what could that look like or what can groups do within their own community to rehabilitate that history and that culture and to reinvigorate it to start those conversations yeah um I, i'm a member of and work with a group called um Kingi Modern, which is um it's uh, uh, Bear language, which is along the coast here. I'm currently um, on Nunakal, or Kwanamuka land, near the water. Further south is Yugambeh, which is another language group, very closely related to Bunjilang, which is the next one further south. Um, my One of my past students, who's now a colleague, um, runs Jindy, which is, uh, it, it means eagle's nest, but not in the Nazi <laughs> uh, sense. It's because uh, if you ever see a real eagle's, eagle's nest, they're very messy mm -hmm. and noisy because baby eagles don't have to be very scared of things. So they make a lot of noise um, and they make a lot of mess. And But in that noise and mess, there is nurturing and care. And that's Jindy is um, a small community organisation just south of Brisbane here. Um, I'm a member of that organisation. We, we are working, there's uh, a group called um, Logan Together, which is uh, 
it, it's a suburban area of Brisbane that has people from Afghanistan and um, migrants from all around the world, Africa, everywhere. Um, it's a very diverse community. A lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, a lot of Islander people. Um, and there is a couple of processes that we bring there. Um, the first one is one that is uh, Durathunga for the Yugambeh mob. It is a, um, it's yarning circles. So people sitting respectfully in a circle and talking, um, talking through things. And I know Native American groups do that. And there's a, a whole raft of work from the early 90s about um, working in dialogues and that's uh, David Bohm and others talked about that and the process of it and there is an energy to that process um, with with us when that energy is grounded in, res in respect to country it becomes um, the Durathunga which is very much a solid process around um, sharing at a deeper level and you know, when you sit in a circle with Aboriginal communities and other communities and you share at a deep level, trauma comes out and you will see trauma um, right in front of your face as people express the pain and suffering that they've had in different ways. And sitting through that and negotiating through that, I've also done those uh, sharing groups with an organisation called Link Up and Link Up brings Aboriginal kids removed in infancy and in early childhood back into the community and back into families. So a huge amount of trauma there as well. And processes for dealing with that trauma um, are fairly well established in the social emotional wellbeing frameworks we have now. And we, the, a, a conference back of oh, some probably close to 20 years ago now, on mental health. Um, and the Australian and Native American delegates talking together said, essentially, this is not mental illness because the trauma is a result, an outcome of social action. So um, these kids removed and these families devastated by removal. You can't say that they're mentally ill. They're actually... Um, socially and emotionally unwell because there's causation there that is social. And there's a lot of that, I would say, um, seeing people who elevate themselves above others and dominate and believe that that is good and right and their, you know, authority is justified. Um, I think that's a form of social illness as well. They have what, what's what been common, which just started probably the past two years in education is what they call in the United States. Because obviously I think the trauma comes from a lot of different angles in the United States because it's such diverse cultures and you never know the situation at hand. So what they started doing in, in schools, and we're talking, you know, K through 12 and a lot more in the elementary 
is what they call the restorative circles. So the kids will do the restorative circles and then they'll also, the teachers will do it themselves amongst their peers and groups. So the restorative circles is definitely something that has started um, in the United States. And I'm sure it probably is influenced by a lot of the work um, done in communities such as yours. And because those type of circles do create these ability for students and, and for teachers that I know and educators, it creates a conversation that they've never seen before. And within those, and I think that was kind of the question I was getting you at, because I always think about the listeners, because we might have somebody from New Zealand, another person from uh, Ireland and another person in, from England and other people listening to the podcast now with these kind of mediums, we get to reach a lot of people is obviously we'll give outlets for people to learn more about your work and to share and to learn. But I always think big picture view and that connection of respect is maybe looking at restorative circles in a broad scale of what that can look like to help bring in that, that, that repair and maybe it's something that we really do need to take a look at because if it's if it's working here in the United States for multicultural situations and showing some validation, and I'm sure there's some doctorate programs working on the concept of restorative circles on a broader scale, um, I always look at the work you're doing and then how to apply that across the board because the work you're doing is so impactful across the board and it can carry on to so many other communities and cultures and I guess that's that's my kind of question to you and would could you picture somebody like within a a, a church group or a, a youth group trying to maybe start something that would be more of like a reparative type of process and and circle and is there places they can look at to find information about uh, reconciliation in general? Because obviously if you go into a community, like you said, there's some communities that have 20 different cultures in them. Um, and there's always the original culture that maybe nobody knows because they've been suppressed for so long. Um, is there any work that you've seen that's done to help bring about that community to start wrapping themselves around that that awareness and then also the repair? What what we're doing through Ginny, there's an alliance along the coast um, of different Aboriginal groups. And um, I, I use a process called connective art. And the process of connective art is, um, the first part of it is, and it's really interesting to do, um, say, with a government um, agency. So I've done it with a government agency. So you have uh, people working in the uh, curriculum department of the education section in government and sat down there with them for three days. And the first, um, the first two hours, um, people are just sitting and drawing and colouring in and making their own designs. Oh, wow. And it's quite, quite an interesting thing because um, I've developed a relational pattern that is um, just a relational tiling pattern. So they do their drawings and then when they place them together, oh, they wow. connect and make, make patterns that nobody could preconceive. 
Oh my goodness. So what, what you actually have is a situation. Um, I, I, I went through quite considerable trauma myself as a young child. I was in a boarding school at 10 years of age. And um, it was a Catholic boarding school and it was rife with abuse of all different kinds. And as a young man, uh, I was the result of that. I was violent and drug addicted and uh, very, very um, crazy. But I had help from people and a couple of main people helped me to get over that as a very young man. I was out of that and studying at university um, by my mid-twenties. And so, um, and that's down to a couple of people, one uncle in particular, who really laid it down for me and helped me. And I think that those sorts of personal contacts are essential for cultural repair. And you make the opportunity for those contacts to happen by levelling everybody to the same level of vulnerability. So if you sit down and you draw next to strangers and you're not used to drawing, you're feeling very vulnerable. And if you're the teacher in that group and you see people's reactions to others' vulnerability, you actually get an understanding of the whole. You get an understanding of who there is going to pay out on somebody who's vulnerable and why would they do that? But if you're working, say, with the university, when I did this with the university, um, the worst drawing that was done, and we did thousands of them across the university, was done by one of the senior managers. It was dreadful. (laughs) And I was able to say to him, that's that's the worst drawing I've seen. Is there... A manager. So he he then said, yes, it is. And I said, because you're spending all your days doing the administration, doing the management, doing all this and your team, and you don't have time for you. And so that repair goes in that direction too. And as a manager, as a person who's leading this organisation, probably not well liked, but in a context where it's levelled and they're feeling vulnerable, then the humanity tends to come out if if the context is safe. So the visual for me, the visual is the overlooked power. So the visual part of relational education is essential. If you're going to learn how to relate to people, you need to share visually. And sharing visually and having outcomes that are preconceived is part of Western education. We share visually and our outcomes are emergent. They come from the group and the context. And if the group sees its own outcomes, it develops a feeling of itself. And if a group develops a feeling for itself, it does something that um, one of the students described very, very well as creating a little mini culture in a room that helps us to understand how to build culture. Because 
essentially we are told that culture isn't built, it's just a given. And you get into management and culture is built, but it's directed. And what is the true culture that comes out of the earth? It comes out for all of us because the earth is intelligent. It will help us. And that sort of conception around respect is that you make the doing explain. So you do things that explain. You don't explain. The explanation comes from people sharing respectfully and doing things together. And and that sort of education, that's what Jindy, that's what we're building. Um, there's there's a couple of groups there that are in alliance with that. I can send you, I'll send you the links to their web pages. Well, and you had mentioned the relational connective art that you're patenting. And is that something that can then be shared with anyone in any group and any type of individual who can bring in those concepts? Yeah, we're talking about doing, there's a couple of past students who are doing it in different ways in different places. And we we can do um, sort of short training programs that help people learn how to do it. And then my belief is in autonomy. People then go and test it and trial it and adapt it and fix it and it becomes something that might be useful for their community. So that's something we could learn from you or we can get more information about some of those efforts. And We're talking about developing a program um, that'll be up and running hopefully by September. And is that something going to stick within your kind of university group or something that has to pilot before you can share it? No, we've... We, We've got, uh, I've got at least four or five people who are really good at it. So we'll be running it in community and we'll be um, sharing that online as well so people can participate online. And then can people, let's say, again, like I'm acting as if I'm a listener, say if I'm an educator, I'm working with a youth indicators concept within my community, can I take up that program online and try to implement it and and where you'll have kind of toolkits and and things to learn some of the processes and ask questions and 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 give feedback yeah i think um we're setting up a system um where it it's an app and you'll be (gasps) able to download the app and the app will assist you to do it with we've piloted running it online completely um it, it works but um at the moment um it's a uh, it's not available yet but hopefully it will be available soon i feel like dennis michael and i are kind of at this brink of this amazingness that not a lot of people know about but now all of a sudden we have the key to your this this work that you're doing and and I'm so grateful for you to share that because as I said I always think about I know the efforts you're doing within that restorative mindset and reconciliation mindset is something once once you take that respect mindset and do it it there has to be a way to apply it to a lot more people and, and that healing process what does that look like in in that collaboration together so thank you for sharing that I'm excited to learn more I 
I will be, I'll sign up as anything you want. I'll try it within my communities. I'll spread it around. <laughs> Whatever you need, let me know. And, and I, I'm just excited to learn about those efforts. So thank you. Yeah, I, I'm in a situation where I'm relying on people. Um, we're sort of, um, we're actually doing this at a, at a community level now. Um, the group of us who were working in universities um, translated across to a, an Aboriginal community organisation, um, which is um, doesn't have the infrastructure and the and the support that's available in universities, but uh, what it does have is an incredible um, freedom. So we're, we're thinking that we will um, develop a training program in cultures of repair in partnership with our organisations. And, and I think that that would be a community level open training program. And we're thinking about that for our own communities. Um, and that, I hope, will be um, you know, a successful thing. I've done the, the connective arts throughout Queensland in 17 Aboriginal communities. I did that back in 2010. And there is a book published on that, but it's out of print now. It was local publication it's a couple of well, hundred odd pages only a very small book and um 90 of it is images <laughs> because oh, wow. we got um, people doing connective art um in places like Yarraba, um and these um uh, these places that are quite remote aboriginal communities where the visual, visual art is the strongest cultural presence. And um, we used it to bring um, stolen generations people, people who had been removed from the community in early childhood and come back at 20, 30, 40 or 50 years of age. And the connective art actually done in a group actually help those people move closer into the community and and help them learn their cultural basics regardless of their age so in that sense its healing capacity um, was vindicated by that study it actually works that that sort of doing the only people we found who weren't um, that comfortable with the process was visiting psychologists because they too have to reveal themselves and um, there's this whole clinical barrier that that comes into place from the clinical culture that they live within where oh you can't reveal too much um, you have to be separate and you have to be professional but these um, processes actually help people connect. And that's the main part of it. Help them connect in their own way with the people that they chose to connect with or that the situation presented with them, them with, so that they had, the connection was 
genuine because it arose from the doing of the thing. And, and I find people are picking that up in this community and using it. There's a couple of people using it really effectively um, around education, helping Aboriginal kids understand mathematics. It's very, very strong um, for helping them understand different patterns. And mathematics is essentially, essentially about different patterns and how patterns operate. So for education, um, I believe it has, yeah, it has some real power. Yeah, that sounds all really pretty incredible. <clears throat> this relational connectivity art, how people can get reconnected to their cultures or even find something within them that they may have been feeling bad about through the, uh, w w the consequences of past colonialism and then even what they're going through with discrimination or, or whatever, this kind of, I guess, uh, innovative healing therapy almost is really cool. And we'd be happy to learn more, even know how we can support you in any way that you need help to make this uh, continue happening. Oh, well, you have to remember that I'm a burnt out old man. <laughs> Who is still very active and still coming up with a lot of great ideas and programs and still has a lot of wisdom and knowledge to impart. And you said in the beginning you don't like the technology part. So obviously it's wonderful you have people to help you get that information out there, especially an app. Um, but again, like Dennis Michael said, anything we can do to support your efforts and help spread the word and, and help individuals learn more about the work because I think it's really impactful and and my goal of doing this podcast and, and I feel so connected to your work, especially in, in regards to the respect aspect and, and I worked really hard on the art of respect because I think it's so deeply embedded in so many aspects of what we do. I, I just, we want to be here to support you. So I guess what we can follow up maybe with some blog and informational posts, but is there particular ways or what you, how you would like our listeners to learn more? Is it something where you can share the information with us? We can put it on our page. Is there a particular way you want them to reach out? Um, I'm, I'm happy to, um, you know, look at uh, the organisation that I work with. Um, Jindy is a very, um, probably for me, the most beautiful part of that organisation is the homework centre where Aboriginal kids who are in mainstream schooling, so, you know, you'll have a, a mainstream high school uh, or primary school and there'll be a thousand students there. Among that thousand students, there might be 20 Aboriginal kids and they come to, um, come to a homework centre at Jindy and um, we teach them. We teach them their language. We teach them. They do artwork. We've, we've done a, a t-shirt um, project where they did connective art and then we printed it on a t-shirt and it's a most amazing looking t-shirt um, that's recognisable all through the community because each kid's artwork is combined wow. and present. And so that idea of, um, of things being shared, things being holistic, people talk about holistic things but the whole group contributing equally to a design and nobody left out. And yet it has integrity. 
itself as a design. The doing of it um, gives an identity that is shared. And those kids are, um, they're quite pruned. I think they've just started up again after the lockdown. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a very, um, a very small in need group. So um, your listeners may want to um, see their website and contribute to them because they are, um, they are a group. What we're talking about doing is applying these principles to the development of housing as well, because oh, wow. housing is a big issue. Um, and we're looking at the respectful design principles and the cultural frameworks that inform that and the cultural underlying respect for country and how we can have a housing system for Aboriginal people in that community that actually allows them to live an Aboriginal life um, while still being in present and dealing with the present day, but having an Aboriginal framework to live in. Um, so that's exciting work. That's work that's been done by Will Davis and the team there. So um, support for them. Uh, me, I'm I'm working through them. So all the things that I talk about that are happening, the small group of people there and our our colleagues across universities and other places are contributing to that. Perfect. And we'll list uh, that information. I'll have you share that with us so we can list that on our website and, and give the that contact uh, information so people can learn more. And I always want to be respectful of our guests and know, yeah, I don't want to inundate people in case a lot of people listen and want to know more. So I want to be able to give them direction of where to go and, and how to learn more about all the efforts that you're doing and the individuals you're working with and all the elders. So I, again, Dennis, Michael, and I are so grateful to have you. That was absolutely amazing. I hope we can have a follow-up <laughs> and, and really kind of follow up with a lot of the work that you're doing and and we'll do some blogs as well on the work so I can follow up with different individuals you're working with so we can highlight the effort yeah that'd be really good it'd be good to have other voices um there's some brilliant people working um around this this thing in this community um I'm um I'm just waiting for a group of them to arrive we are so honored again to have you on we're so grateful for your time and all the information you gave us we're we're excited to to work with the community that you're working with to help share the information to as many people as possible i know that's part of the process is learning and sharing together thanks so much for that i really enjoyed talking a bit about it i haven't been in the classroom for many years but you can tell i talk a lot on on teaching so looking at this um program you're doing it's wonderful thanks very much for that it's great wow. to be part of it and um, I'll send you over the next week or two I'll send you a list of things including contacts for other people who'd be good for you to talk to as well yeah consider this uh, a classroom because uh, you, your students will be listening from all over the world and in uh, and this in perpetuity and yeah, keep us posted. Let us know when that app is up. Let us know when the kids have shirts. Uh, what a confidence booster that might be for them if uh, all our listeners start buying and supporting these kids who have designs for shirts. <laughs> um, 
yeah, that's a potential as well. Um, I'm, I'm talking to the, the board there about um, things like that. And they're a really focused, um, community-focused group. They're very strong on protecting their kids and having their kids promoted. Um, and we're looking at education programs to help other communities share this. So we're happy to give as well. Yeah, and thank you, Professor Sheehan. And any effort we can do, especially for Dennis, Michael, and I for here in the United States, we definitely want to help spread the word for you. And just to share for the kids and everyone. So we want, we're your effort here. We're your, we're your strength here in the United States. <laughs> thank you. And take care. Eh? Keep safe. You as well. You as well. Very, very appreciated. Yeah, have an excellent day there. All right, then. Bye-bye. Next week, we are excited to welcome Adi de Castro, the Honorary Consul of the Republic of the Philippines, the first ever to be appointed in San Diego County. Please subscribe to Pileloha Now, Building Sustainability, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Pileloha Now, Building Sustainability. Tag and share with us your community programs, successes, and concerns so we can help spread the word. We'd also love to hear about your sustainability stories or to be a guest on this podcast in our Art of Respect series, please visit cityindesign.com. For Pili Aloha Now, Building Sustainability, Art of Respect series, this is Pili Aloha. And this is Dennis Michael. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> <laughs>